Reunion, Jonah and Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, was presented by Earl Craig on August 6, 2015, at Gutenberg College's Summer Institute. Reunion, Tanakh and the Gospel of Matthew. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2015. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. The following recording was made in a classroom setting and technical difficulties resulted in some reduction in sound quality. Let me just show you what's in these sections and then I'll tell you what I would like to do. So section 8, you have on the first page my interpretation. Notice that the date of it is August 5th. What's the date today? Okay, so five days I've changed my interpretation. That's what happens. If this were August 2nd, it would be different. That's just what, <laughs> that's what happens with me. So this is an example of where I was on August 1st, okay? I haven't read through this completely. I'm somewhat joking in that maybe this, I am agreeing with this. I'm not going to bother with page 1, in other words. Page 2 of section 8 is my translation of Matthew 12, 22 through 45, much more than just the passage we were looking at. Pages 3 and 4 and 5... And six is my translation of Jonah, the entire book. And I've underlined certain things and bolded certain things, just uh, stuff as I read it and reread it and reread it. I thought, I think maybe this statement is, th this phrase, this word is important. So I just, it, it shows you kind of where my mind was going in terms of thinking that things are important with respect to Jonah. Then in section 9 is what you see there at the top, some important interpretive issues of Matthew 12, 22 through 45, and Jonah. So again, as with all the previous seven sections that I have given you, plus the set of maps, I hope I provided you with some more interesting or helpful material that you can take with you, and over the course of the rest of your lives, you can use this material for the benefit of your own study. Now, what are we going to do? Well, I am not used to giving monologues, standing up in front of a group of people and being the only one who speaks. I used to be, and I used to do it on a regular basis, but in fact, I was the senior pastor of a non-denominational evangelical church for 21 years. And the church was a church of about 400 people. And so every Sunday morning, I would stand up and do basically what I'm doing right now, which is being the only one in this room who is talking. But eight years ago, that little issue in John 1 arose, and I got booted out of the church and, so, and got labeled a heretic in, amongst the churches in Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, Irvine, down in Southern California. And part of what happened, too, was that relationships that my wife and I had had for 30 years, friends that we had had for, those friendships just evaporated in a thin air, including ones with a fellow pastor of mine and his wife who were godparents of our children. It's as though we didn't exist anymore. And as a result, I have been doing a lot of studying on my own and thinking on my own and writing on my own, except with groups of people along the way the last eight years. Another result, too, just so you know a little bit more about me and where I am in my own understanding of the biblical message, 
I have concluded from more study of the New Testament over the last eight years that the roles of pastor, teacher, elders that are described by Paul in his letters are not actually appropriate for the Christian community since the death of the apostles. So there's obviously a much longer explanation to that, and I'd be glad to talk to answer any questions you have about that later. But my contention is, is that since the apostles, there is no one, no human being whose theology is 100% correct, and therefore no human being who ought to be an authority in their theology over others. And so, but what's happened within the church is in the church community, Christian community, is that people have looked at the references to pastor, teachers, elders, that sort of thing in Paul's letters and come to the conclusion that they really have the right to be an authority over other people and to teach them as an authority. After all, they went to seminary. I did. I've got a master's in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. I've studied Hebrew for four years. I've studied Greek for four years. So aren't I an authority? Absolutely not. And, but that's the impression that we have gotten even from our Bibles because of the way that they have been taught. So, but my suggestion would be is that we're all fellow journeying. We are all fellow travelers on the road towards understanding the Bible together and helping one another. Some people are able to do that maybe more easily than others are. But if there's anything that I, I think I ought to be or anybody else who maybe has the capability that I have with the languages and with the time to study and the resources and the experience that I have had, it is simply to lead others in discussing the Bible in order to, to provide them with an environment for continuing to learn the Bible and come to their own conclusions about what the Bible really is saying. Because I don't think when I get to the judgments, God's going to ask me, well, did you believe John MacArthur? That's not what he's going to ask me. What he's really going to want to know is, do I have a heart for his mercy, a longing for his mercy, and a longing for truth, regardless of how accurate or not my theology is? So I lead a women's Bible study on Wednesday morning. I lead in a co-ed Bible study in our home on Sunday morning. So I'm much more used to a lot of interaction. That's what I would like to do. I may fail miserably at doing it during the next half an hour or so, but what I think the Summer Institute is all about, what Gutenberg College is all about, it's the reason why I'm on the Board of Governors of Gutenberg College, is that it's to provide people an environment to continue to learn for themselves, on their own, even if it happens to be in the midst of a group. So let's try it. I'm going to make this conversational with you. Turn to page 2 then of section 8. And let's just go right to Matthew 12 here then. And verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees replied to him, Rabbi, we want to see a sign, sameon, from you. Who were the scribes and Pharisees? Anybody. They thought they were the authorities. Were they an authority in the Jewish community? So they were an authority in the Jewish community. They were the leaders of the Jewish community. What kind of knowledge did they have? Scribes were more often priests. And so they had to have detailed knowledge to be able to transcribe and also to lead, conduct services and all that kind of stuff. Great. The Pharisees were like a revolutionary group that started from regular people. Okay. And they had to carry the authority of what they carried with them. 
because they didn't have authority from the structure. Okay. And, and then, as we've said, there are different groups of Pharisees with different beliefs. Okay. Well, that's really interesting, Marshall. I had not picked up on the fact that the scribes were, many of them, priests. I looked at the word, it seems to be kind of a secretary of a king in Old Testament Israel, and it often gets spoken of as just sort of copyists or writers, people who are copying the scriptures. But priests, okay, what was their primary knowledge, at least as far as they thought it, they had primary knowledge? Knowledge of what, Bill? Uh, the scriptures. Okay, good enough. The Hebrew scriptures, and specifically the Mosaic Covenant. Do you all agree on, with that? So these are people who are Jews, leaders in the Jewish community. By the way, what's the name of the Supreme Jewish Council leadership group? The Sanhedrin. There. And where was it based? Tiberius. Really? Later it was. How about at this time? Was it in Tiberius? Jerusalem, probably. Okay. Where did these scribes and Pharisees then come from? Did they come from Jerusalem? Trick question. We don't know. They asked, Rabbi, we want to see a sign from you. What's a sign? What do they mean by sign? A miracle. One would think that. Is there any other option? Evidence? Some kind of evidence for what? To prove what? That he has authority as what? A representative of God. The Messiah of God? Not necessarily. We don't know exactly what the scribes and Pharisees knew or did not know. Are they simply asking, are you an authoritative spokesman for God to whom we ought to listen? He, they may be asking, are you the Messiah? We want you to prove that. But at least what we want you to do is to demonstrate to us that we really ought to grant you the authority of a spokesman from God. Any other thoughts there, Bill? So a sign can also just be a message. Okay. Like, okay, a billboard. Good enough. It's just God indicating this is what's going on. Okay. Or... If Jonah himself was assigned to the Ninevites, as Luke tells us, then we would, might want to incorporate that into it too. Okay? Let's hold on to that. But he answered them, and even an adulteress. Now, here's what I did with this word. Is it genos, I believe? Greek word, generation race. I said generation slash race. Two obviously different meanings. An evil and adulterous generation slash race seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Carl's group, what did you decide about the word genos? Is it generation? Is it race? Is it na did you talk about that? We didn't quibble about that. We just went with generation. You did, with generation. And what does generation mean, Tim? Well, I'm speaking for myself. Please. We talk about it. Um, this particular group that inhabits this particular time. Okay. And any time you get a group of people living at one particular time, if they are evil and adulterous, they are... That's bad. That ain't good. Yeah, right. We got a problem here. And they, though, and even adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What's the inference from that? Evil and adulterous people do what? They w seeks for a sign. What does that mean? Proof. Is that wrong? Is it bad to want proof? No. Can be. Doesn't say that here to me. But not a bad suggestion, though, that that's really what's going on here that they're pretending to, because, why is it they're pretending to seek for a sign? Because they've seen signs. They've been seeing stuff yeah. already, and what, they need another one? Okay, great. All right, good enough. But maybe there's something even here, too, where Jesus is implying, you know what, evil people just, they go a direction that in one sense it's okay, but in another sense it's not okay. And notice he's talking about their motivation, if anybody really were to ask Jesus, gosh, 
could you prove to me that you're the Messiah? Do you think Jesus would go, no way am I going to prove to you that I'm the Messiah? I think he'd really say that? No, because he's been doing that all along with what he's saying and what he's been doing by performing miracles. So it seems as though he's getting at their motivation. But no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah the prophet. Let's look at this. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation, slash race, at the judgment, and they will condemn it because they repented when Jonah spoke. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation, slash race, at the judgment, and she will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It beholds something greater than Solomon is here. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so also the Son of Man. What can you tell me about that that you all learned in your groups? Verse 40 only. What did you decide? What questions did you ask? What comments were made? What did you notice in the verse that struck you that you went, okay, this is helpful for interpreting this verse. It looks like it makes reference to Jesus' resurrection, which immediately followed the three days. Okay. On the basis of what words there? And so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. Peripherally. I mean, he does. Peripherally. Not only that, guys, but I, I didn't stay there. But yes. Saying, ultimately, he said, you're not getting the sign now, you're getting the sign later. Okay. Just watch for when I. Spent three days in the heart of the earth. Good enough. But we also observed, noted a comment when, when Jesus talked about the three days of rebuilding the temple hmm. and the three there. Okay. And that you and the disciples, John comments, didn't understand what was going on then. Okay. So, so definitely the, the sign that he's talking about and describing right here probably wouldn't have helped in that particular day. Okay. All right. What do we do with the two words there uh, at the beginning of verse 40? Just for three words. For just as. And then the words a little bit later on at the end of that line that go down to the second line, so also. Just as, so also. What do we do with those words? Words, but, the, but where we ended up, we were seeing the I guess like an analogy. Okay. As, as Jonah was, that sign of Jonah in a sense, dying and being resurrected for three, in three days, that, that was like what Jesus was. And so we were pointing it to that the biggest sign of who he was was his resurrection. All right. So there's an analogy here. So there's an analogy here. And what's an analogy? One thing is like another. So what's like? What are the similarities again once more? Well, that Jonah was three days in the belly of the well. Yes. Fish. He was resurrected from the belly of the whale, yes. vomited out. Yeah, and Jesus, in a sense, is taken out of the world for three days. Okay. All right, good enough. So Jonah's experience in the whale is like Jesus' experience with his death, res- death and resurrection and vice versa. And Jesus is saying here, but no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he says, for just as. So, what can we infer then from this about what the scribes and Pharisees mean by the notion of sign? 
or at least the way Jesus is taking them. Well, no, I was going to ask that very question. Are you, do you mean the kind of sign they wanted was something better than just healing a sick guy? Okay. They wanted something more substantial. They wanted that. But they seem to want, if this is what he's getting at here, a miracle? Was it a miracle that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the, belly of, in the, in the stomach of a fish? Yet, yet he's not the only one who spent. And who else has? Well, there were two other people who, during the whaling times in the 1800s, that were actually pulled out alive of the stomach of a whale. Um, they were whaling, their boat was smashed, and two of the guys were swallowed, and since a whale doesn't have teeth, there was apparently enough oxygen for them to survive for um, under a day. You can't survive too long because of the stomach acid. So it's a miracle that he survived so long. Okay. And it's also a miracle he was saying, because the other two people were completely raving mad, and ne like they never could understand anything they ever said again. Again? Seriously? Yeah, they were they were completely raving mad. They couldn't. They didn't recognize any of their friends. They said they were. Yeah, they, wow. Yeah. Who knows what it was? But they said that yeah, they were. So two men during the whaling industry during the whaling times got swallowed, survived, came out were absolutely crazy afterwards. But the miracle here then certainly is the fact that Jonah spent three days and three nights there. So Jesus really may be saying, okay, you guys are asking for a miraculous sign, right? Not just, hmm, okay, Jonah goes to Nineveh, as Luke seems to be implying, and he becomes a sign to the Ninevites simply by showing up. Now maybe it looks a little bit different, because of having spent three days. But it took him a while to get to, to Nineveh from wherever he got vomited out. So he might have changed back to looking like a relatively normal person by then. We're not sure. So there's a similarity. Maybe that's what's going on with his sign then. But is that what Jesus is really getting at? Okay. How does that relate to what Jesus is saying? How does that relate to the story in Jonah? Well, we compared the uh, responsiveness of the men of Nineveh as contrasted with the after an unbelief and aggressive opposition to believing of the Pharisees. That all, all it took for them was you know, uh, Jonah walking through the city saying, you guys are toast in 40 days. Okay. And they took that seriously enough to repent. We talked about what nature of repentance was, but that, that, whatever, whatever nature that was, they repented on very little, whereas the Pharisees have seen a miraculous sign before their very eyes, and the next thing you know, they are fighting really, really hard to avoid the implications of that sign. Good enough. So a remarkable difference, the, the amount of time here. So Jonah in Nineveh for three days, and all of a sudden the entire city, it seems, including the king, goes, whoa, wait a minute, we don't want to get destroyed let's bow the knee to the God of Jonah. How long has Jesus been doing what he's doing? Three years. I'm not sure. By the time we get to Matthew 12, whether it's actually the full three years that we typically say close to, uh, to that, longer than three days. In addition, there has been miracle after miracle after miracle. How many times did Jesus go into a synagogue in the Galilean area and declare that he was the Messiah? There is no exact detail given for that, but it's countless. 
there are references in Luke to, well, he goes to the synagogue. He, just, he was wandering around and going into synagogues and reading from the scriptures and, and basically declaring himself the Messiah. And the word has gotten out and people are traveling from other areas of Israel to see and even Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon coming down to see him perform miracles and hear what he has to say. They didn't need the internet in those days to know who this guy, what this guy was claiming to be. It was word of mouth by, and, and spreading like fire that what was going on here. We didn't get the idea that he was declaring himself Messiah when he went into the synagogue. Okay. And if he did, then how come he was welcomed continually? Okay. I'm thinking of Luke 4. He gets the scroll, and the scroll is Isaiah, and the scroll in Isaiah says something about the anointed one. My I have horrible at memorizing the scriptures. And Jesus says, and this is being fulfilled in the midst of your hearing it. So you get it one time. But he taught in this, he taught in this synagogues continually. You're right about that. Yeah. My question is, I'm not... Fair enough. ...that he was confessing that or getting people, or leaving people there. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That's good. Let me think about that some more. I guess I was just assuming that even that he did it in other places besides the place that he grew up in in addition to the fact that the miracles, according to Isaiah 35, are intended to demonstrate the appearance of the Messiah. They could be a people that were doing healing back in those days. And there were a lot of people that were claiming to pretend to be Messiah. I don't mean to be rude, but... You're not. No, no, this is what we want. No, you're great. You're objecting. You're providing evidence. That's what this is all about. That's what I need in order to continue to learn. So thank you very much. By the way... What he's saying, there's a book, unfortunately it's not being published anymore, it's called Bandits, Prophets, and Messiahs. It's an excellent book about the religious climate of Jesus' day. He wasn't the only person in Israel at that day who was claiming, even if it's just through his miracles, (laughs) to be the Messiah, for sure. Claiming to be the Messiah, if, if Jesus thought that the Son of Man was the Messianic title, he used that himself, and especially like when he healed the, the paralytic who was lowered to the ceiling, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, that's a good point. By virtue of the fact that he's using this title, Son of Man, that you might know. Coming from Psalm 8, the Son of God who comes from humanity is what I think David is doing in Psalm 8. Then he is explicitly declaring himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. Okay, thank you. The miracles that were also being born at a time, were they of the same level? I mean, more people who were born blind seeing, uh, were they raising people from the dead? And, you know, are we talking about the same okay. number of miracles? They aren't the same. My reading of it is that everybody that had a problem connecting with the came to him, and he healed everybody, even the most extreme. But I think, were the other folks claiming to be the Messiah, were the other people performing miracles, performing miracles at the same level as Jesus. I would expect not, but I really don't know. Okay, fair answer. Thank you. Let me keep going for just a second here, okay? Well, let me just get back to verse 41. What are we doing with that? How does verse 41 contribute to what Jesus' response to the scribes and Pharisees? As they're asking for a sign, and he's saying, yep, be glad to give you a sign in the future. It's going to be like Jonah. Then what do we do with verse 41? And where am I? The Pharisees respond in 41. They're responding to the previous parable of the vineyard owner sending his slaves, ultimately his son, back. And they're agreeing with the sort of treatment that the vineyard owners ought to, excuse me, that the 
usurpers of the vineyard ought to receive at the hands of the vineyard owner. What's it doing there? What's it contributing to what Jesus is saying in his response to scribes and Pharisees? As he's saying to them, yeah, I'll give you a sign, but it's in the future, has to do with my death and resurrection. And then verse 41. They repented. <laughs> so what's Jesus' point? Pretty soon he's going to hope. I mean, we're going to see the Pharisees say, he's talking about us. Okay, okay. This uh, foreign prophet uh, that they had never seen before comes in and he tells them God's about to destroy you and that's all they need to hear yeah. uh, to repent. And Jesus, who has been working amongst them and, and, and at given them many proofs of his authority. Okay, let me keep going here. How about 42? Well, I wanted to say, I was hoping you'd call her. Oh, where are you? Carl, okay, let's go back. I'll go backwards. That's fine. Hey, if you, you want to speak up, I'll let you speak. The contrast, the contrast is that it was really, it's really fascinating. The people of Medivh heard, responded almost immediately in the grassroots that went all the way up to the top that came, you know, had organized organized the entire response officially. Queen of Sheba actually sought out, heard from afar, okay. sought out to the point of, of putting together a fairly large entourage to go seek the sea of this wisdom that this guy named Solomon mm-hmm. was, what was claimed to be. So she actually went to a lot of trouble and sought out. Okay. So it, it seems to me that the, the two examples get even more mm. uh, extreme mm. in, in their response. Interesting observation. Well, the people in Nineveh, they listen and repent. Sheba listens, but the Pharisees won't do either. They don't repent and not even listen. Okay, so what's Jesus' point? Jesus is greater than either Jonah or Solomon. And listen to me, people. Okay, and? Well, this is a little bit of an aside. I didn't mean to take it too far. When he says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, it's like, I'm going to give you the sign of the worst prophet we had. He was just like you. He did what he was told, but he didn't want to, and he hated the people he was taking it to. Okay. And no love in it. Okay. Just like... Preach it, brother. <laughs> yeah. So what Jesus does here is he refers to a story about a man who himself really has a bone to pick with God. As Jesus is claiming, basically, that the scribes and Pharisees do, but they aren't willing to admit it. And in that a conscious level, perhaps, they're not acknowledging it. And they are acting like this other prophet. Just use this phrase. I call Jonah, he was anti-anti-Semitic. Yes, but in a way that he was against Gentiles. And I understand anti-Semitism, and I ain't for it whatsoever. But I'm also against (laughs) anti-Gentilism, especially on the part of a Jew where I might have the opportunity to learn about Yahweh and come to a point where I would understand the biblical message. And it seems that Jonah just not into letting these people know what God was all about. For whatever reason, we talked about that in our group too. So that's a good point. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, let's just wrap up with this then. 41 and 42. I wonder if what he's doing here is he saying, you've asked for a sign from me. Let me tell you about you. I want to turn the tables here a little bit, and I want to tell you about you. And I'm going to tell you about you by referring to someone that if you look at that event, and you look at an event eventually that will happen to me, that's actually 
<laughs> what you need to grasp about me, my crucifixion and resurrection, because that in and of itself is telling you something, that you are morally depraved, hostile, rebellious people towards the very God whom you claim to be in obedience to by virtue of your following the Mosaic Covenant and your claims to be leaders of the Jewish community. But rather than you're just trying to figure that out, which may seem to you a little bit obscure because the Son of Man being on the earth, okay, that, that's obscure. Let me give you something just right out front here. Remember those Ninevites? What ethnicity were they? Gentiles, Assyrians, people who eventually were going to destroy Jews, not care one rip about Jews. Those very people, metaphorically speaking, I think, could stand up at the judgment and go, God, you really think you should grant mercy to these Pharisees? We humbly submit that you should not because they aren't really following you. They aren't truly repentant people. We actually are repentant. We were repentant people. So we intellectually, we realize that we qualify for your mercy while they do not. And I say it that way because there's no arrogance there on the part of the, uh, of the Ninevites. There's no self-righteousness on the part of, this, of, of the Ninevites. It's just an intellectual grasp of their own moral condition and the, and the Pharisees and scribes' condition. And then, just to add, put icing on the cake, gravy on the turkey, let me tell you about a woman. Yeah, a woman, scribes and Pharisees. A woman, she'll do the same thing. Yeah, same thing. This single woman can stand there at the judgment and go, intellectually, God, I know that I qualify for your mercy and these people do not. Talk about making some... Now, if I'm right here, help me with this, okay? Some male chauvinists angry. You point out the fact that someone who is of a lower status in society actually is more acceptable to God than they are, like the woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair when he was having a meal with Pharisees. Maybe that'll help them to think. So it seems to me that verses 41 and 42 really are the point, not the sign of Jonah in his experience there, even though that can be if they were to grasp that well. Okay. Did you want to ask anything or Jeannie one? I was going to say that you would ask our group about the sign. Something we had to talk about, Jeff mentioned that it was a sign of condemnation. Yes. As well as Jesus, this was a sign of condemnation. Of condemnation to the, the Pharisees. Thank you. Well done, you all. Thanks for doing that with me that way. That was much more comfortable for me. So it's all about me and the. And it's just, <laughs>